Welcome to the Testimony Service Podcast, the podcast that will encourage you, increase your faith, and draw you closer to God. I'm your host, Martina. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So in an effort to help our listeners' faith increase, each episode will begin with the scripture. And the scripture for today comes from James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And now for episode 30, The Cotillion Story. Uh, my name is Brian Schutte. Uh, I'm an attorney. I live in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I've lived here for about 25 years. I started practicing law in May of 1991, or at least that's when I was officially sworn in. And I started out working at uh, Baptist Healthcare in Louisville in the corporate legal department. And I did that for a little while and just really wasn't all that well suited to a corporate legal environment. I, I could do the work, I just didn't find it particularly uh, interesting. And so I, I, I took a job with a little law firm in a place called Horse Cave, Kentucky. It was more the kind of law I was interested in doing. It was insurance defense practice and litigation. Just a little over two and a half years, I left that firm so instead of working for the insurance companies, I started representing individuals in a personal injury practice that was uh, run by another lawyer, and he brought me in just to kind of help with the cases. It was a great learning experience. Uh, it was never really intended to be permanent, but I did it for about two and a half years. Um, so in January of 1997, I opened my own law practice, and it was it was really a pretty scary thing because at the time... My wife was a stay-at-home mother, and we had uh, one child who in, in January of 97 was two and a half. About two years later, we had uh, our second child, and I was the only breadwinner in the family. And the prospect of going out on my own was really quite frightening, but you know, we just trusted that that was what God had planned for us. It was kind of interesting I was practicing with, he came to me and said, I think it's time for you to go do your own thing. And it was a very slow motion sort of thing because he gave me about seven weeks to wrap up what I was doing there and then expected me to be gone. And this was Tuesday of the week before Thanksgiving of 1996. And that morning in my devotional, I had read uh, Psalm 127 uh, verses one and two. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase that, but in the New American Standard, which that translation is pretty different on this one verse, it talks about unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord stands guard over the city, the watchmen stand watch in vain. And the part that really uh, struck me was that basically you work really hard to get the uh, bread of heavy toil or heavy labor while God blesses those he loves, even while they're sleeping. And I didn't really realize the importance of it when I read it that morning. But when I got to work that day, my partner came in and said, I think it's time for you to go do your own thing. And I immediately went to that verse. 
you know, it became clear to me that that was a very timely verse. And then over the course of the next year that, uh, you know, I relied pretty heavily on that verse. I kind of thought it was a little bit of a promise to me of just be faithful and God will be faithful and take care of us. And as it turns out in that first year of law practice, as terrifying as, as it was at times, I made exactly the amount of money that we needed and uh, with enough to pay taxes and everything. And we got to the end of that year and our faith was greatly strengthened, uh, not terribly surprised, but certainly, you know, being on the other side of an, a challenging experience and seeing in retrospect how faithful God was kind of gives you confidence, not just for the present, but also for the future. And so over the years, I've practiced in varying combinations with uh, other lawyers. I've I brought in a friend from law school. We practiced together for a time and then separated. And lawyers are seem like a, a lot of times are reorganizing, and I'm pretty bad about that, I suppose. And eventually, I ended up again that where I was kind of on my own, and this was in the uh, the 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11 timeframe. Well, I, one of the areas of practice for me was uh, medical malpractice. And those are really difficult cases. You're against a, a you know, very well-funded defendant and doctors you know, strongly defend those cases. And I had one that I thought was just an incredibly strong case. And to make a long story short of that, I took it to trial in May of 2011, and uh, it didn't work out. We didn't win at trial. I did take it up on appeal, and I got it reversed, and the Court of Appeals ordered a new trial. But then they, they appealed it up to the Kentucky Supreme Court, which reversed the Court of Appeals and reinstated the verdict that was against me. And so I, tell you, I say that to tell about you know, kind of the impact on a, a lawyer who works based on success, you get paid on success, not on effort. If you take a case like that, especially a big case, if you don't prevail, you, you really get three different negative impacts from it. Um, the first is, and most obvious is you don't get the fee you were hoping to get. Uh, the second is you've advanced expenses in the case and you don't get those back. And in a medical malpractice case, those can be extremely high. And in this particular case, the expenses were six figures that I had advanced. I actually did that with a line of credit. And then uh, the third hit, and this is one that's kind of the most insidious, is that the time that you're spending working on that case is time that you're not paying attention to new cases. You turn a lot of stuff down because you just don't have enough bandwidth to handle the big cases and also everything else that comes in the door. When that case kind of went south on us, I had this delayed triple hit, not getting the fee, not getting any expenses back. Uh, and then I always call it when my pump cavitates, which is a term, it's an engineering term, but in order for a pump to work properly, it needs to be full of fluid. But if you get an air pocket in there, a cavity, the verb form is that of that is cavitate, then the pump will malfunction. And so when you get to that third consequence, uh, your pump cavitates and things just malfunction. Well, so in the months following that May 2011 disappointing outcome, I was really feeling it and financially was really feeling it. Pretty well recovered now, but at the time it was just really, really difficult. 
And so I have two children. And at the time, my oldest was a junior in high school. And she had been invited to join Cotillion. It's basically like a social thing for girls where they wear formal dresses and they do service projects. And it's a real honor to be um, asked to join that. And I was pleased because my daughter had just gone to that school. She had homeschooled freshman and sophomore years. And then the junior year, she got there and pretty quickly, because she had some friends there already, was invited to join Cotillion. Well, fast forward to October of 2011, so about five months after that trial, she's uh, into her junior year of high school there, and it's time to pay some dues for Cotillion. And our reserves were just completely depleted. She needed $150, I believe, and we just literally, I had like $80. And the $80 I had, and it, it was an unusual circumstance. I had just made a trip to Oklahoma for a different case. And the client who was paying me, instead of uh, having me charge things, he just sent me a check that I cashed. And when I got back, I had $80 left over. So that made us $70 rather short of the 150 that we needed. And literally while I was talking to my wife about it in the kitchen that day, I got a phone call from a client who I had handled a speeding ticket for, which is unusual for me to charge for speeding tickets. It's not the kind of thing that people really need to pay much for. But this one was a pretty bad ticket for somebody that had a bad history. So I charged him and he had not been able to pay the entire fee up front. And it's also unusual for me to allow people to make payments for that kind of thing. It's best always just to get that money up front. But he still owed me $75. And so he called and asked me if it would be okay if he dropped a check by my house that day. And of course I said, yes, well, if you do the math, you take the 80 and the 75 and you get uh, $155. So we had the 150 that we needed plus $5 more. And we took that as this incredibly profound demonstration on God's part that not only does he care about the big essential things, You know, he also shows us grace and mercy in some of these seemingly lesser uh, non-essential things. And that was in October of 2011. I can tell you that certainly there have been times since then when things have gotten tight. Sometimes there's plenty and sometimes it's a little tight. But we've always been able to kind of look back on that particular event, which we call our cotillion story, and know that no matter what, God's faithful to us. That was uh, not a circumstance I would have ever chosen to go into, but it's certainly a lesson that's pretty priceless, and I I really wouldn't trade very much for having that. And so I guess on that day, you know, I realized that the Lord really does take care of uh, those that He loves, even while they're sleeping, or in this case, even while we're standing in the kitchen trying to figure out how to scrape up what is a very small amount of money in the grand scheme of things, but in that moment was just out of our reach. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Brian. That's a good story. I like that. So when you said how God cares about the small things, like personally, it's so easy to, you know, just say, oh, I can fix the small things on my own and just kind of reserve the big things for God. Like, you know, he doesn't care about these small things. So I was going to ask you, like, How do you keep the perspective, I guess, or the mindset to involve God, even in these small, seemingly insignificant things? 
kind of on a daily basis? Well, I'm not sure that I always do that on a daily basis as I should. You know, I guess the longer you walk, the more experiences you have. And it's kind of the collection of those experiences that teaches you to be confident. You know, Hebrews 11, 1 talks about faith being the evidence of things not seen and the substance of things hoped for. Well, that was one of those really strong evidence of things not seen. I mean, you know, a skeptic could hear that story and say, well, that was just a coincidence. But of course, we know better. And so having that knowledge and that experience, I think it teaches you that you can be confident in God's care, even over the smallest details. There's a verse that talks about the hairs on our head are numbered. But I, I do think that the that just the static of the world and just life can drown that out. But sometimes it takes getting to one of those moments to remind you that, you know, God's a big God and he, he's a big God who cares about little things. And so I, I guess you sort of let your circumstances remind you of the things that you know and the experiences that you've had and, you know, why you should have a depth of confidence in those things. Yeah, for sure. So you've been in law, you said, since when was it again? I'm in my 30th year. I started in May of 1991. Yeah. How do you feel like your relationship with God looks different now um, as you're working in law than it did maybe 30 years ago when you were first in law? Like, do you lean on God more? Like, I'm sure that's not all just, I don't know, 30 years, a long time. You've been walking with God, so. Well, (laughs) I'm personally of the the belief that no matter what you do, if you're a believer, you know, the thing that you're doing is your ministry. I've definitely regarded law practice as ministry for years and years. I mean, there, there are so many cool opportunities that I have as a lawyer that I don't think, like, for example, somebody that's in vocational ministry would have, you know, because people will come to me with a problem that they can't solve that's bigger than their ability to solve. And sometimes it's within my ability to help them and, you know, sometimes not, but always I have the opportunity to offer them encouragement. And sometimes it's just reminding a fellow believer that they can be confident in God's provision for them, kind of like our experience. And so in that sense, you know, law practice is a wonderful ministry opportunity because you get people that typically have problems they can't solve on their own. And you you always try to make really clear to them, I'm not the one who's truly capable of solving your problem. But I do believe that God will do that if, you know, if he'll, he'll let us. And, you know, sometimes a, a legal matter involves some very explicit spiritual issues, but oftentimes it's more mundane than that. But there's still that great opportunity there. And I've always seen that, you know, where I'm called to ministry just like every other believer. My ministry just happens to take place in the setting of law practice. Yeah. So how do you stay humble in a career where it seems like, yeah, you have all these problems that are larger than life. And, you know, I guess in a sense, you would kind of feel like, man, I'm the one who can really help solve this problem. How do you stay humble? (laughs) Well, I tell you what, law practice will humble you. I, I don't know how well I achieve staying humble. That's really, I guess, probably for other people to say. But I, one thing I've said over the years is I keep my successes at arm's length, but I keep my failures very close. 
because those remind me of going into a situation that it doesn't always work out the way you want it to. And I don't necessarily bring enough to it to, uh, to bring a, you know, a solution to everything. And the case that I was talking about where I got the disappointing verdict in May of 2011, it's not an overstatement to say it changed my life. And it was a profoundly humbling experience for me. And I, I think about the failures or the disappointing results, however you want to frame that. And I think that makes it pretty easy to not let the successes go to your head. When they do go to your head, you're just seconds away from getting whacked, usually, in my experience. The, uh, there, I, actually, I'll tell one more quick story. I can remember having a hearing one time, and there was a young lawyer on the other side, and I decided I was just going to be gracious. I would beat him, but I just wouldn't beat him bad. You know, I don't want to hurt his feelings or anything. Well, we went in there, and the judge ruled in the, the opposite of my position. And so instead of me beating him gently, he beat me like a drum. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mind telling that story because it just goes to show you that, you know, arrogance and hubris will come back and bite you in a heartbeat. So times when you're not as successful as you would hope, those are times that you should probably keep fairly close to you because it reminds you of your fallibility and of your uh, opportunity to not succeed, I guess, at times. Yeah, I guess uh, my only experience with lawyers is from TV. <laughs> you're the only, you're the only real lawyer I know. So, <laughs> so it's easy to, um, you know, have this idea of <laughs> them walking around, you know, larger than life. But <laughs> you're a pretty humble, cool guy. So <laughs> I appreciate that. I yeah. I can tell you that what you see on TV is um, not such a great representation. Always, you know. Uh, the practice of law is a grinding, difficult thing sometimes. Although I honestly think I have the stresses that I experience from the practice of law. They're probably not any different than the stresses that, you know, the guy that's working in the factory has. They come in different forms, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think we all are stressed by whatever our working environment happens to be. And it's um, probably kind of hubris to think that, well, my job's the most stressful of all. I just don't think that's accurate. So, you know, if you're doing the thing that you're designed to do and gifted to do and called to do, and you're trying to do it in that way, there's a lot of satisfaction in it. And, you know, I always say that I I love practicing law 29 out of 30 days every month. There's a day that you just (laughs) don't have a good day and don't like it and wish you were doing something different. But by and large, knowing that you're doing the thing that God, you know, prepared you to do, that's a great you know, comfort. I actually left law school after the first semester and went to seminary Mm. for about three weeks. And then (laughs) I very promptly quit that and went back to law school. And uh, so I finished a semester off pace with the class that I started with. And I've I've never really had any regrets over that because I, it kind of helped me solve the dilemma. Do you go into ministry or do you, you know, go do a non-ministry vocation? And for me, it's very clear. I needed to go back to law school. I need to practice law. I just need to try to do it in the best way that is of the most service possible. And I don't always get that right, but it's at least the, the motivation or desire is there. Yeah. Um, how did you figure out that law was your calling? Us, us millennials are still trying to figure out our callings. <laughs> We're just like, what? <laughs> well, so for me... I took a class. I came up with this really great idea 
that I was going to graduate high school a semester early and get a head start on college. I, I wasn't able to do that, but in that uh, what would have been my last semester, I got in trouble for skipping school. I think I left school and went and got a hamburger or something, not anything malicious. But I had to come back after the first of the year so that I could be suspended for skipping school, which there's not a lot of logic in that, but that's, that's what happened. In pursuit of that, the summer between my junior and senior years, I took a couple of classes in summer school, one of which was our uh, basically a political science class, and I just loved it. I mean, it was just the most fascinating thing in the world to me, and I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to be a lawyer and never really wavered very much from that. So now, you know, that's a broad field. You can do almost an endless variety of things for law practice. What I have developed over the years is just kind of a general law practice with a civil kind of civil emphasis. I don't really do much criminal work or anything like that. I do a little bit, but not much. And uh, and I also get to work with churches a lot and helping them with legal issues, which is really cool. So I guess I figured it out just by seeing that it was something that I was interested in. And then once I got into the practice, realizing that well, actually, God has things for me to do here that are directly kingdom-oriented ministry things. And if I'll pay attention and do them right, there'll be some really good times and very satisfying contributions to make. Yeah, that's cool. Did you grow up in a Christian household? I'm wondering what your parents did for a living. So I did grow up in a Christian home. It wasn't as intense, I don't think, as what we've provided for our kids, but i I've always respected the contribution that my parents made. And my father was in uh, IT. Uh, back then they called it data processing, so computers. And my mother was a registered nurse. And so uh, we moved around a fair bit just because dad's job would take him different places. So I was born in Florida, then moved to South Carolina, then Alabama, then Tennessee, and then Kentucky. So as you could say, I'm about as Southern a Southern boy as you can be. <laughs> And my mother was from Georgia, so I kind of had that influence, too. There you go. <laughs> I guess we'll wrap up just with just any final words um, of encouragement or, I guess, one piece of advice that you would want us to take away just from hearing your story today. It's probably hard to distill it into a single comment. I think what I would say, and, and of course, you've met me in the context of being a Bible teacher, uh, leading some Bible studies, and I would say that you know, taking God's word seriously and taking God at his word seriously gives you a, a tremendous edge in life because you're aligning yourself with the creator's design. And the more we do that, even though we do it fully and, and incompletely, but the more we can align ourselves with the creator's design, the more we will flourish in our lives. And so, you know, during various periods of time, for me, there have been verses that have spoken to me in a particularly strong way, like the Psalm 127, one passage. And, you know, I think that God will often speak to us through the Bible and the more time that we spend uh, really trying to integrate that in, into the core of who we are, the more, quote-unquote success will experience understand and respect the power of god's word thanks for listening to another episode of the testimony service podcast 
It's incredible to see that we're 30 weeks into this thing. Wow, we did it, you, me, us. Those of y'all who faithfully listen every week, y'all give me strength to keep going for real. I appreciate y'all. So real quick, stop what you're doing. I need you to look at the description for this episode on your phone, wherever you're listening. You will find a link where you can leave me a voice message. I want to hear from you. What you like about the podcast? Tell me how it's encouraging you. Tell me how it's challenging you. Uh, Whatever you want to say to me, I want to hear it. And I will be picking a few of these out to feature on an upcoming episode. So go ahead, do me a favor, leave me that message. So again, thanks for rocking with me. And as always, here's a sneak peek of next week's episode. I really, really wanted someone to look at me in the eye and tell me, Shamaka, I know you're not okay. I know you are not okay. I just wanted someone to notice that I am drowning.